0: Welcome to For Good Measure, an interview series celebrating diverse composers and other creative artists, sponsored by a grant from the California Arts Council. I'm Nanette McGinnis, Artistic Executive Director of Ensemble for These Times. In this week's episode, we begin our Decapo Capo Conversations, a mini-series where we'll be giving familiar segments a topical twist. Today, we revisit Pamela Z's and Don Norfleet's perspectives on their paths to becoming a composer. Here's what Pamela Z had to say. In the early part of my professional life,
1: basically the, my early adult life, um, I was a music student um, at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I was uh, studying voice with John Peyton. I was very lucky to have him because he was probably the only. Um, the only instructor on the voice faculty that would allow their their students to sing anything other than bel singing. Um, and he, he didn't, he, he preferred that I do, you know, uh, opera arias and art song when I'm studying with him, but he did not mind that after hours I was going and playing in clubs and singing and other styles of music. Um, there were people on the faculty that would have dropped you as a student if they found out that you were doing that. Um, so uh so I was very lucky in that regard. So I went through music school singing, you know, this classical music, mostly like common practice period, uh and opera arias and, and art song and so forth. And at the same time playing uh like sort of singer-songwriter, like kind of rock music and folk rock. Um uh in in, in in clubs. And uh, then after I graduated from college, I was actually making my living as a musician playing um, music in clubs. But at the same time, I was doing, um, I had a radio program on the local um, NPR affiliate, um, which was KGMU in Boulder. And I feel like I got my sort of contemporary music and experimental music education from the staffs of the that radio station. And I was doing this freeform radio program where I was just playing works by all manner of contemporary music, avant-garde music, experimental music across all different genres. And so I would be segueing from, you know, Varese and Stockhausen into, like, you know, the Ramones and, um, (laughs) you know, um, you know, or, you know, uh, Brian, Eno, or, you know, um, and, and so, uh, I became enamored of contemporary music and I really wanted to veer more in that direction and do things that were more avant-garde than what I was doing, but I was having a hard time finding that. And I tried in my songwriting to just write things that were that were more experimental, and it just ended up sounding like quirky versions of what I was already doing. And um, then at one point, I was exposed to someone using a digital delay. Um, and it happened to be the bassist of Jocko Pastoreas, who used to be the bassist of a of a group called Weather Report. And at a concert, he he uh, the best of the band left the stage and he sat down and started doing a duet with himself by looping his bass into this digital delay. And I was just so taken by that. I was like, how is he doing that? And, you know, uh, so I went to a music store the next day. Um, I described it to the guy. And he was just like, oh, that's a digital delay, but you don't want the one that Jocko was probably using because that's really low. It's a foot pedal one. It's a really low sampling rate and it's not going to sound great on your voice. So he sold me a rack mountable digital delay unit. And I always tell people I went home and my poor neighbors, I never went to bed that night. I just was um, amazed at what can happen when you can, Loop and layer your voice, and so I feel like it was that was a, a very specific moment in time where I actually found my voice as an artist. Because as soon as I started working with the delay, I of course had to run out and buy a bunch of more delays and build a built sort of a, a rig that was made from like a whole stack of digital delay units, um, and multi effects processors, and so on and so forth. But the thing that was specific about that situation was that i i began to listen differently i began to construct work differently i became aware of um other elements being important besides melody and harmony and rhythm i was i was much more interested now in timbre and in texture and um i became aware of like structures that had to do with repetition and slowly changing processes, and um, I just uh, I also became really aware of how musical the sound of spoken, uh, you know, speech sounds can be because of all the melodic and rhythmic material that is embedded in the speech sound, um, and so I um, so I just started composing completely differently. And I basically jettisoned everything I had been doing before that and just started a whole brand new uh,
0: way of working. Here's what Don Norfleet had to say.
2: Uh, the first time I I sang harmony was when I was five years old. Um, my mother was in a um, choir with her sorority Delta Sigma Theta. So they had the Delta Coraliers and they invited Family members to come along, so I, I remember, you know, having to sing a note and hold it while other people had to sing something else, and I was like, oh, this is so cool!" Um, so when I was in choir uh, in at my school in the fourth grade, I went to public schools in LA County, and um, if there if there was no harmony part. I would create one. Um, so at the same time, I started playing flute again in the public schools. So, uh, fourth grade, um, there was a little orchestra, um, little black girls, little black boys, you know, playing Handel and, you know, <laughs> um, and whatever, what else, whatever else was, was, uh, was yeah. set in front of us. Yeah. So so. Um, then, you know, going into junior high, not middle school, um, I started improvising um, with the band. I mean, I, I would I would do it on my own, basically, um, and then playing at my grandmother's churches and stuff uh, and then going into to jazz in the uh, in high school. And I had to play the saxophone because flute players were discriminated against. Uh, you had to play, <laughs> you had to play something else. Uh, so I, I picked up the saxophone just for high school, uh, in order to get in the jazz band. And so, um, so when I, uh, when I went to college, when I start, when I began college, music was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, in terms of something to major in. But by the end of my sophomore year, you had to major in something. <laughs> so like I'd taken all of these courses that I was like, eh, you know, I, I didn't take to music theory at all. <laughs> uh, but I thought, okay, I got to major in something. So I'll major in music. And um, then the next year I was allowed to, the, my school, um, Wellesley College, we were allowed to you know, go to certain uh, other schools, uh, and it would count uh, toward our um, our graduation credits. So Wesleyan had has had a very rich music program, and so I took jazz history, not jazz history, jazz uh, theory, mm. and performance. And that's when all that music theory started making sense <laughs> to me because I could I had to play it, internalize it. Play it in all the keys and hear it, and improvise. So mm-hmm. um, now, how I got into composition was um, well, I started I started writing music um, as a songwriter at age fifteen. Singer songwriter, I would clunk out chords on the piano and I would sing. Um, I didn't I didn't really write out a lot of things. Um, I could, but I just didn't because I thought, well, who's going to play it? So when I got in college, um, I, I, st- I I heard some 20th century um, composers, um, and I was just kind of fascinated by like, wow, people are making melodies out of um, things that have no tonality, <laughs> or that's just atonal, or that's bleeps and blops and all. And I I was kind of intrigued by that. So I started um, composing in in that language. I never could really get into the whole um, tone roast thing. Um, But a a lot of times I would start with something and then I'd quickly leave it. So I'd say it's I started doing that my second year in college. And then when I um, then I Um, Went to this thing in the summer, this symposium um, held at my college called the Composers Conference. And I met, you know, all these amazing composers uh, Mario Davidovsky, uh, John Adams, and some of the fellows there who are now like, um, you know, top in their field. There was Tan Dun, um, Bright Ching. Wow. Chen Yi, Zhou Long, just all these people. And I was just like really amazed. <laughs> and uh, so I decided, okay, this is what I want to do when I go to grad school. So um, I, I went to Columbia University and uh, got my master's in uh, composition. And, uh, and yeah, so after I finished my master's, I kind of... Um, turn my attention to ethnomusicology uh, mm. for, my P- for a Ph.D. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, wow. Kind of a 180 because my um, in ethnomusicology, my degree, uh, my focus was on African-American music, specifically hip-hop culture, underground hip-hop culture. So that's what my dissertation is, <laughs> is on.
0: Thank you for listening to Four Good Measures Decapo Capo Conversations and a special thank you to our guests for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast by clicking on the subscribe button and support us by sharing it with your friends, posting about it on social media, and leaving us a rating and a review. To learn more about E4TT, our concert season online and in the Bay Area, or to make a tax-deductible donation, please visit us at www.e4tt.org. This podcast is made possible in part by a grant from the California Arts Council and generous donors like you. Four Good Measures, produced by Nanette McGuinness and Ensemble for These Times and designed by Brennan Stokes, with special thanks to co-producer and audio engineer Stephanie M. Newman. Remember to keep supporting Equity in the Arts and tune in next week For good measure.